Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 79. Got a great interview for you this week with Emmy-nominated composer Christopher Willis and vocal contractor and session singer Elise Willis. We get into stuff like the rules of union recording sessions, traits that will get you repeat gigs as a singer or composer, working on streaming projects versus theatrical releases, and the importance of knowing when to move on in your career. So during our chat, Elise mentioned that it's important to give yourself permission to change what your vision of success is at different times in your life. Basically, one of the core principles of this show, so that was convenient for her to bring up. So today, for the intro, I wanted to go deeper into giving yourself permission and applying that to all kinds of parts of your life. From experiences in my own life, I think there are a lot of things that I didn't give myself permission to do that probably set me back in my career or limited my beliefs in what I could and could not do. I think the biggest one, and probably the one that is not unique to myself, is not giving yourself permission to make mistakes. So many of us do this. When I was younger, I didn't like to do things until I thought I could do them perfectly. And even to this day, I struggle with that a little bit. Think about it. How can you learn or grow if you're unwilling to let yourself make mistakes? I'm watching my daughter learn to crawl right now, figuring out the coordination of which arm and which leg to move. Imagine if we weren't willing to make mistakes to figure stuff out. None of us would be able to walk, write, play sports, do anything, really. We'd just be blobs on a floor. I don't know, it's something about getting older. We transition away from that childhood innocence, and we start to worry too much about what people think about us and how we might be judged for not doing something perfectly. But we've got to make mistakes to learn. Another one that comes to mind when I think back to my career is not giving myself permission to inconvenience people by reaching out to them or asking them questions. Something I'm definitely not plagued by anymore, luckily. But think about that one. How dumb is that? I've talked about it in the past. You've got to put yourself in the other person's shoes. If somebody reaches out to you and says, I love your music, would you like to work together? Or you did a great mix on this track, what are you doing to the bass? You'd probably be flattered. So you're not bothering these people if you contact them in a polite and authentic manner. So enough about me. What's something that you're not giving yourself permission to do? I'm sure there's something. It could be career-related. It could be personal. Here's a few other examples of things I've seen in the music industry. Permission to let go of control. There's a lot of micromanaging in this business. Also, you could look at releasing a song as letting go of control as well. What else do we have? We've got, how about permission to be wrong? Definitely not music industry specific, but sometimes your idea isn't the best. So don't be stubborn and force it into the project or song. It's okay to be wrong. Here's another big one. Permission to relax. Permission to take a break. How many of us struggle with that? How many people in this business do you know that are working seven days a week, 14 hours a day, or working at multiple studios? It's a tough industry and you've got to put a lot of hours in, but you also have to take some time for yourself and for your family. 
We get so caught up in the hustle culture for so long while we're building our career that we often forget that we're allowed to take days off. So obviously the list could go on and on, but I'm going to leave it there. But whatever that thing is that you aren't allowing yourself to do, career related or not, I'm guessing it can pretty easily be linked to something that you are avoiding or some kind of fear. Look at my two examples. They are clearly linked to fear of failure and fear of rejection, and they could have prevented me from developing new skills or new relationships. So there's a common thread in a lot of these intros. I'm sure you've noticed. It's identifying what you're avoiding. The average person likes to stay in their comfort zone. And I guarantee you that that is the one thing that you'll definitely always give yourself permission to do. But comfortable isn't going to help you grow. So ask yourself, what would your life look like if you gave yourself permission to insert your answer here? Does it look better? If so, what are you waiting for? Today, we're joined by Emmy-nominated film and TV composer Christopher Willis and vocal contractor, session singer, and songwriter Elise Willis. Chris is best known for his work on HBO's hit comedy Veep, as well as his score for Armando Iannucci's film The Death of Stalin. One of his most recent projects is Schmigadoon, which just started streaming on Apple TV+, and he's also composed music for a Disney Parks ride opening in 2023. Elise has sung on dozens of projects as a session singer, including Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, The Lost City, Lightyear, and Spider-Man No Way Home. She's also a vocal contractor for several television shows and is in her 14th season singing with the prestigious Los Angeles Master Chorale. So piles of stuff to talk about today. Welcome to the show, Christopher and Elise Willis. Hey, y'all. How's it going? Hi. Thanks very Great. much. Hi. Yeah, we're all right. Yeah. It's a hot day here. We're, we're recording this during the, uh, the brutal heat wave. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's not cold. <laughs> It's not cold. It's never really cold in California. You guys are based in, in the Los Angeles area, uh, so we gave that away. But uh, yeah, you know, I have one question just to, you know, spitball back and forth. You guys are married, right? That's correct. We are. That How is did correct. you guess? <laughs> I, it, you know, when you get old enough, you realize last names match for a reason. Um, so being a married musician couple, are you guys working a lot together or you both have your own things going on? What's that like in the house? Yeah, say, both. I mean, yeah. yeah, we do stuff together and we do our own things. It's it's a good balance. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, a lot of the time we're doing different things. There's a certain chaos about that. You just don't know if we'll both be incredibly busy with something at exactly the same time. But often we work together as well. Uh, we've written quite a lot of songs for Disney together. Oh, nice. We didn't always do that. Yeah, that's kind of emerged as the, uh, particularly the Mickey Mouse show that we both worked on uh, evolved. Very cool. I used to work for a guy that wrote a lot of Disney music. He may, he may still write a lot of Disney music, but uh, yeah, that was, that was a while ago for me. <laughs> That's where I, I started doing Hannah Montana's and Jonas Brothers and stuff like that. But um, oh, wow. nice. right. oh <laughs> before we get into all the tangents and, and random questions, I, I like to just get a rundown of how you all got into music, how you ended up in, in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, we'll do Ladies First. Elise, if you want to do a quick synopsis of, you know, how you got sucked into the music industry. <laughs> uh, sure. So uh, I'm originally from Central California, a town called Porterville. It's about 45 minutes north of Bakersfield. So not too, too far from L.A., but feels like a very different world. Uh, a lot of cows, a lot of oranges, <laughs> a lot of smells that don't seem to exist as much in LA. <laughs> you can always tell exactly where you are in proximity to my hometown when you're driving up the state of California. Like, oh, there's that patch of cow smell. I recognize that. 
<laughs> and real tumbleweeds. That's real, yeah. like the most exotic thing. Yeah, tumbleweeds me. that will end you if you're oh, not wow. careful. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking like three, four feet diameter type? Definitely have encountered those. Yes. Mm. That's yeah. amazing. They're the kind that go by when someone says something, says a joke that doesn't land. You know, <laughs> outside the window, a tumbleweed will go by just like in a cartoon. Right. Well, you can tell what Chris thinks about my hometown. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, I grew up doing community theater, playing in orchestra, singing in choirs, just a sort of smorgasbord of smorgasbord. It's pretty yeah. close uh, of various theater and music endeavors. And then I ended up at UCLA. So that's how I got to L.A., and uh, I just sort of stayed here after that. I got really, really lucky that at the end of college, I auditioned for the LA Master Crawl and I, I got in at the end because I'm not really sure if, you know, how or when I would have sort of entered the more professional music scene if I hadn't gotten in then. So even though when I got in, I was on a, a, essentially like a, a volunteer basis, there were sort of these additional singers that they would bring in for certain concerts. So I wasn't raking in the money, but I was making a lot of really great connections and having incredible musical experiences. And then that's basically how I got my foot in the door with session singing, was I was meeting people who were doing that. I met Chris we can talk about that later yeah. about how we met not through music but you know eventually we started working thing you know together and um just getting recommended to certain people because of my affiliation with uh, master crawl so that's kind of how i started doing what i do that's cool can you give us uh for anybody that doesn't know because i'm actually not super familiar the los angeles master corral how big of a group is that what what kind of concerts are, are you doing uh, yes, I can tell you pretty much anything you want to know. Also, I can recite the entire CBA to you if you want, because I am the union rep as well. Um, so <laughs> We'll skip that part. <laughs> Probably, yeah. You, you mean you don't want a whole hour-long podcast of me reading the CBA? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's currently, uh, it's it's uh, evolved to become a 100-person wow. professional choral ensemble, which is the largest professional choral ensemble in the country, as in everyone who is on stage is paid as a professional singer. A lot of choral ensembles, and I don't say this to denigrate anyone in any way because this is very standard, will have a, a smaller contingency within the group of paid singers. Sometimes they might be section leaders or, yeah, just a handful of people that they've brought in. Uh, ringers is another term, right? right. But then you'll be um, surrounded by people who may not be getting paid at all or be, may be getting paid like a small stipend. And so that's actually how the group was set up when I joined it. So I was one of the stipend singers. And uh, our uh, artistic director, Grant Gershon, to his credit, I think was always a little bit uncomfortable with that. And so he uh, was the one who really pushed for us to get all 100 singers paid. So, you know, it's great. He, That's awesome. We have a really awesome relationship with the organization and we get to work a lot with the LA Phil. Our home base is also Disney Concert Hall, as the Phil is. Uh, we do stuff with them at the Hollywood Bowl over the summers. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great ensemble. We We've 
also been sort of diversifying the kinds of things that we've been doing. So a lot more, uh, you know, BIPOC composers, a lot of female composers. We have a female composer in residence currently, and the organization is really, you know, working to make sure that there are all kinds of voices heard in choral music. Uh, and I, our programming is better for it, I think. So yeah, it's a really fabulous organization. And a lot of the singers who sing in Master Crow also do uh, sing on films and TV shows and commercials and all that kind of studio singing as well. Amazing. How many, um, I know that you've got like, what, alto, soprano, baritone. How many of each part are, are in that choir? Is it 25, 25, 25? Or is I, it... Roughly, it's not exact. Um, yeah. We're always looking for tenors. So any tenors <laughs> out there... Come on down. <laughs> but yeah, it's roughly balanced like that. Cool. Yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. Chris, how'd you end up here? Gosh, uh, well, I, I was born and raised in LA as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it sounds it. Yeah. No, I grew up in the south of England. Also in a rural, in a village, actually, to be fair. I was always a classical music nerd growing up. I gravitated towards that kind of music when I was a kid and was playing the piano incessantly and um, very much living, living kind of, there's a certain kind of person who goes through their teens being obsessed with, uh, with Mozart and Beethoven rather than <laughs> whatever the pop music is that they're, that they're supposed to be listening to. And that was, that was me. And um, I did an undergrad at Cambridge, did music at Cambridge, and then studied the piano at the Royal Academy of Music, which is in London. Amazing. And at that time, I, th I thought I was going to be a pianist. I, th I, I, I'd been sort of composing my whole life, but it seemed a very amorphous ambition. So my, my amorphous, unreal ambition was to be a composer that I didn't talk about. And my real concrete ambition was to be a pianist. And so I, I so I studied the piano after finishing at Cambridge. And then for a year or two, I was a, I was a pianist. I was sort of traveling around and doing recitals and doing concertos and, but I was not cutting, you know, CDs and winning the Tchaikovsky competition. I was, I, I was sort of surviving <laughs> as a pianist. And I, I was sort of restless as a pianist. And so I went back to Cambridge again. Uh, so I did even more degrees. I did a bunch of postgrad at, 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 back at Cambridge, but still not in composition because I'm an idiot and I <laughs> um, uh, yeah, hadn't figured things out. Well, actually, to be fair, I... I I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew that there was this one professor I'd had at Cambridge, a uh, music analysis guy called Dean Sutcliffe, that I just thought was terrific. I sort of thought through all of the teachers in all of the disciplines I'd had my whole life, composition and piano and, and theory. And I thought, you know, he's actually, he's very different, but he's actually better than all of these kind of great maestros that have taught me on the piano. So I, I went back to Cambridge to, to study with Dean some more. And I did a, a PhD on Domenico Scarlatti, which was Dean's current subject at that time. He was very interested in 18th century music. So I spent a whole splurge of time then at Cambridge, not only studying, but also teaching, teaching the sorts of subjects I was studying, but also going back over all the subjects that I'd liked the most, a lot of which were composition subjects. This is very, very nerdy, kind of old fashioned Cambridge version of composition, but I was teaching fugue and counterpoint and stuff. Yeah. And while I was there, I sort of I stopped playing the piano quite so incessantly, which I think gave me a, t a bit of a chance to think. And that's probably quite a common thing with pianists. If you're, if you're on the hamster wheel, you're practicing all day and you don't really have time to ask yourself if you like the life that you have for yourself. But 
back at Cambridge, I was able to sort of think a bit more straight. And, uh, and I actually started really getting into movies and realizing that I'd always been into movies. I'd always been into composing and I just never put all these things together. And so with the teaching money I had, I, I started building a little studio in Cambridge. And so I had a weird period where I was literally teaching undergrads about Bach and, and fugue and French, you know, Baroque music in a room filled with MIDI keyboards and microphones and stuff, because I was building my <laughs> studio, but I was still teaching. And towards the end of that, I started doing the things that you're actually supposed to do to get into film music. I made a demo and I was very fortunate that I managed to get in touch with a uh, film composer, Rupert Gregson Williams. I actually, I was incredibly lucky here. I made one connection. He asked me if I had a demo <laughs> CD. I said, yes, although it wasn't finished. I made one copy of my demo CD and cut the thing out with the scissors and put it all together. <laughs> I didn't say, here's the only copy of my demo CD. Let me get this back when you're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't damage it. But uh, we, 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 we went back and forth a little bit, but eventually I, I came out quite suddenly from just, sw I swapped Cambridge and tweed jackets and, you know, Baroque music for LA very suddenly and came to work for Rupert in Santa Monica. That's amazing. But I had to sort of throw away everything I knew because there was so much to learn. I, I had never studied movies, never studied film music. I really, really, really was behind on all of the music technology. So I had to really learn from everyone I could. Rupert, luckily for me at that time, he was based at Remote Control, which is Hans Zimmer's studio. Yeah. And I made some good friends there and, and some very patient people like Matt Margeson. Shout out to Matthew Margeson. Um, we, we worked together for Rupert for a while. We were, we were in his studio and Matt was extremely unnecessarily nice to me, this weird, <laughs> weird Cambridge boy. And so, yeah, so that's how I ended up here. And, and um, I luckily never used my plane ticket back and, and, and just stayed. That's really amazing that uh, you, you had the one CD and that's the one that got you the gig. <laughs> and uh, your remote control, I haven't been over there, but I, I've, I know a few people that have worked there and it sounds like a very awesome place to like learn to become a film composer because it's everybody's in there and the technology is top notch. And so that's, that's awesome. That's really cool. I didn't come up with this way of phrasing it, but I've heard Dom Lewis say that, that emphasize how lucky we were because he was there at the same time, how lucky we were to be in that exact place at that exact time. I think increasingly a lot of the composers who have studios there don't spend all their time there these days. Various things have changed, but there was, it was a real perfect storm around there. There were so many big movies happening and yeah. so many composers all just cheat by jowl with each other, whose careers were all taking off. And then we were all their assistants. We were all sort of, you know, the, the layer underneath, working like crazy to keep up with them. That's awesome. Oh, I had, I had a question. I don't want it to sound like a loaded question, but obviously working there was a really great thing for you, working under great composers. And I feel like the composer thing is that you want to find your way to be an assistant for somebody that's making movies. And then a lot of times they do, you do a lot of ghostwriting when you're the assistant, right? You're given themes and kind of expanding on that. Yeah. But it's also a massive learning opportunity. But at the same time, in today's world of like taking advantage of your interns and stuff like that, it might be frustrating. Do you think that's a good thing for composers? Does it work out for the assistants? Oh, that is a, a loaded question. I know, yeah. Yeah, I, I, and I know you know a lot of people, so you don't have, I don't want trying to get you to throw anybody in the bus. I'm just curious to, because you have success and you came up through it, you know, because I guess my reference point is I came up through Capitol Studios, classic recording studio. Right, and I feel right. like 
you know, you were the runner and the assistant and there's this path that really worked. Maybe this is a better way to phrase the question. There's a path that really worked. And now we're in 2023. Recording studios are very different. People are working at home. I think Mm -hmm. it's almost better to work for an individual person than it is for a studio. I guess the question is, is it the same in the composition world? Is the best path still that assistant ghostwriting cutting your teeth or is there a new path in 2023? Hmm. Well, the, the broader question that you asked first is, man, it's huge. It's, you know, we could talk for <laughs> we could talk for hours on this, sort of going back and forth on it. Yeah. And one thing I'll say, and your listeners may have noticed this, you're going to get quite diplomatic answers from me because, and, and you generally will, partly because, <laughs> you know, people sort of, if they survive in the industry, they stay friends with the people that they that they work for. Exactly. And, and yeah. Things like that. Also, the truth is, and this kind of gets to the center of the dilemma that as you get older you become more sympathetic to what you went through when you were going through it you may have been feeling very rebellious and also there's a moment when you've just broken out when you're feeling very very angry at the system and then as you get older <laughs> life hits you with these other lessons that make you realize you know these people that you worked for that seemed like they may have been slightly psychopathic you start to understand what they were going through and that they were they were under the thumb of someone else who was under the thumb of someone else. Oh yeah. And it's not it's not entirely clear what change it is that one would I mean we're almost getting into politics here. What what exactly is it that would work? You know, what we have doesn't work that well, but what is it that would work, you know, substantially better that we're sure would work better and not yeah. backfire. So yeah, no, it's a huge huge subject and I I have periods at least knows being very angry and being very upset about about things that happened. But everybody does. I came up through studios and felt like, I, yeah. this is ridiculous. I can't believe I had to do this. And then, you know, in the end, you're just like, whatever, that was my journey. That's how I got here. So I, I don't regret that. I don't hold any grudges against anybody that did anything to me. So, you know. But. That's right. Yeah, you, you look at the way that it's select, you know, the, the haphazard way that people even advertise their jobs. And that doesn't seem very sensible. But but you know, we've we've it's sometimes advertised jobs that I've had, and try to do it by going to the the main schools that you can think of and telling them. And of course, you get inundated with so many, yeah, so many, so many applications that you don't know what you're doing, and and you end up sort of doing what people used to do, which is to get personal recommendations and you know go back to the same kind of ways that people were doing it before. Yeah, we could keep going on the first part. Let me jump to the second part. That's a really interesting question. I do think things are constantly changing. You know, one big thing that's changed with composers is that they simply don't have as many computers as they used to. When I arrived in, I mean, that sounds sort of slightly like a rather glib thing to say, but but in in 2008, 2009, a composing rig might, a small one would have seven or eight computers and a big one would have like 20, 25 computers. That's amazing. So, at any one time, several of those computers weren't working. And so my impression of, of a place like remote control was that there was a lot of people who were, whose first job was technical in some way, was uh, fixing the computers or, or going off to Home Depot to buy something that you could build a shelf for the computer to go on or going off to uh, the Apple store to buy the right cable, uh, you know, and, or you yeah. were making tea or for the people who were going off to the Apple store to buy. You know, it was just so many people because it was so many machines. Yeah. I do think that's changed, but most, most people are, are composing in a much more efficient way. And I think that probably means that the setups are going wrong less. So that is actually a huge change. Yeah. 
And and also that the attendant thing on that is that you can you can start learning the ropes on your own much more now because you can buy an iMac and you can go onto YouTube and spend your time looking at videos to see how the professionals do it. And that's a very, very recent development. So you could sort of make the argument that you could figure it out yourself more now. Yeah. And there's always an argument that it's healthier to do your own thing and to be on your own and not to be part of a big herd. That was always a big danger at, at, at Hans's place 15 years ago that, that everyone was ending up kind of in lockstep mentally. And you could feel it happening, but you didn't know what to do about it. Everyone was ending up writing the same kind of thing. So, um, yeah, yeah. so there may be an argument that it doesn't quite have the, that that path doesn't quite have the strength that it did before. But I, I'm, I'm thinking on the fly here. I've never, <laughs> never thought about it quite like that. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. It's a, a particularly deep question to throw in uh, seven minutes into a <laughs> podcast. So, but yeah, and, and when he, that was on my list for later. But yeah, it is interesting. The thing that you mentioned that I think is kind of really true is a lot of people are working at home more and now you've got your one rig, your one computer, you can basically do all your work at home. You don't need people there. Then you've got these new people that just aren't learning the way they did before because now the composers are so self-sufficient and mixing and engineering is the same way. So yeah, mm. you know, random yeah, curious yeah, thoughts. Interesting. I was just going to add. I feel like you have well, something to say. Yeah. Well, I was just going <laughs> to say, I think something that we don't really talk about very much with this industry and I suppose this goes, this could be for many industries or the entertainment industry as a whole. But my experience, obviously, being married to a composer and seeing firsthand like how much time it takes. I mean, you know, there were years and years and years where he was working seven days a week. I mean, he basically up until like a few months ago, you know, like right now we're in a sort of patch where he can work more normal human hours <laughs> and it's okay. But I mean, that's I, <laughs> like, we've been married for 10 years and I think like our entire relationship basically has just been him working almost every single day. And if we do try to take a trip or do something, you know, we're squeezing things before we go. And then we're jumping absolutely directly back into it the second we get home, you know, it's not relaxing. And so and, you know, Chris does have um, some help, but he definitely struggles, I think, with the um, idea of letting things go, probably because of him coming up in the system. Because I think he would say, and he did sort of already say, like, there were a lot of really, really good things, especially when he first got out here, you know, being surrounded with people who were helping him and when he was learning. Yeah. But then, like, once he kind of mastered that and got more to the actual composition part of it, I think if I may say so, it became clear that he was pretty good at it, you know, and he was getting, he was getting more and more responsibility. And then you start to get to the point of like, well, when does this tip over into 
too much, you know, like somebody else taking a little too much credit for for what he did. And maybe it's that's sort of it sort of shades. Yeah, I mean, and maybe us, that's di- that's probably different for everyone. Like, you know, where their sort of line is, where they become uncomfortable with what's happening. But I'll just say, like, you know, he got to that point where it was like. I don't think I can do this exact thing that I'm doing anymore because it right. just does feel like I'm being taken advantage of. And uh, and so I think once he got there and then like fortunately was able to get a couple of gigs um, under his own name and step away from that system, then it was hard to be like, well, what do I do now? Like I do actually need some help. At the very least, I need, you know, some tech help or just some like basic assistant duties, not even necessarily ghostwriting. But um I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it's a constant conversation about how to have like a normal life and work-life balance and, you know, people with families. And, you know, I think the older you get and the more that those things start to become as important or more important than the work, which is probably not the case when you're like in your early 20s, you know, you start to be like, okay, I need to step away a little bit. I need to start you know, maybe I need to bring someone in for this because I'm working 12 hours a day and I'm not seeing my family anymore, you know? So, so those are also, I, 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 we, nobody really talks about that, I think. And it is so, so, so easy to work insane hours and never see anyone and be incredibly unhealthy. And we're actually, we're building a new studio at our house, which is not the first time we've built a studio, but it is the first time that the room has windows like Chris mm-hmm, has been nice. literally in a windowless room <laughs> for 10 years. And so, you know, just little things like that that I think people don't hear a lot about. It's very easy to get into some really unhealthy behaviors. And so if that means you need a little extra help to try to live a normal life, then I think we should normalize that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. That's a great way of putting it, actually. Yeah, it's almost it's almost like you, well, to use that as a, as a metaphor, it's almost like you hired someone to to build you a house. And the industry assumption was that you just hire this one maestro to come and build you the house on their own. And you're like, come on, come on, build the house. <laughs> Why is it taking so long? <laughs> I mean, yeah, writing music takes ages. And so, yeah, there's always some combination of driving yourself completely insane or or being too slow and getting fired <laughs> or, yeah. uh, or, or, or having other people uh, get involved. It's just yeah. an inherently unresolved situation that that, yeah. that everyone everyone we know is is struggling with all the time yeah it's a, and it's kind of uh going back to what elise said it's kind of a an industry-wide thing i was thinking is you know there's producers that have producers under them that are maybe getting their songwriting cut they're not really getting their name on there there's mixers that have guys doing 70 percent mm-hmm. of it prepping everything that's how they're knocking out four songs a day it's because some kid set it up all night and worked on it all night and then there's there's a level of that where you talk about like where you know, Chris, you got to the point where you were like, I want to go on my own. I don't feel comfortable doing what I'm doing anymore. There's a lot of people that just end up comfortable too, because you're like, you could, let's say you're a mix assistant, you're working on amazing records, you're getting Grammy nominations, you're the mix assistant, you're living a great life, you're making plenty of money, you're not rich, but you're, you know, you're comfortable. You could very easily just be like, hey, I love working for this person. This is great. I'm never going to go out on my own. So just that like, there's a lot of people that I think end up there who maybe could have gone further in their career, but they're like, hey, this is dope. I'm fine like this, you know? That's a great point, because if you make that jump in the world of film composers, you might be going from the hugest A-list movies, moving right out into, you know, TV, things with no budget, 
completely different world where you're having to, yeah, there's the expectations are completely different and the audience is completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to throw a question over to Elise that I, that Chris, you can jump in on, uh, cause I think there'll be an equivalent answer from you. At least you're super busy as a session singer. You're like, I was looking at your IMDb. It's like, well, <laughs> it depends who you ask. <laughs> There's big movies on there. Obviously you're getting a lot of calls to, to be on these sessions. You're obviously dependable and, and talented. Are there things about you or traits that you think make you the repeat phone call to go back on this with this composer, to go back on this, to vocal contract this again? Is there anything you can share with singers that can help them get more jobs? Hmm. Um, well, I'm glad that you used the word dependable, actually, because I've often said that I think the best thing that I can do in my job is to be dependable. You know, if somebody calls me, I want them to feel totally comfortable that I'm going to give them what they need, you know, whether that's singing or contracting or conducting or whatever it is. You know, I want them to feel totally comfortable that they made that call. So, yeah, I, dependability is kind of in my opinion, the name of the game. I mean, you know, the, the kind of stuff that I do is not necessarily the showiest stuff, you know, and I'm kind of okay with that. You know, it, it is like a different thing doing, you know, more solo stuff or being in front of the camera or being more like an artist, right? Promoting your own record or whatever. I don't necessarily have a huge amount of interest in that. It's fun to like step out every now and then. And, and I, you know, and that's great. But I really like being part of groups and part of the, you know, the music team that's putting something together. I like singing in choirs. I like, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's because I was a violist growing up. I like being, <laughs> you know, being part of a section and part of something where multiple people are coming together to create one great thing. It's, it's a nice sound when you're in the violas, isn't it? You're right in the middle. I mean, surrounded by everything. Well, look, I, yeah, I wasn't going to talk about violas, but I'll tell you <laughs> what I like about viola is that sometimes the composer puts you with the violins, right? You're kind of backing up the violins and sometimes you're with the cellos because our strings are the same as the cellos. So um, we're kind of like switch hitters in the orchestra. I like that. Anyway, that's, we don't have to talk anymore about violas now. Uh, <laughs> it, it could happen though. <laughs> it, it might come up. It might happen. But I think also like as I've, gotten older and just gotten more experience in the industry, I think, and working with Chris a lot, you know, a lot, like not even always in an official setting, but just like at home or like doing demos for him or, you know, just having conversations about what he's thinking and what the challenges that he's dealing with, whether it's the writing challenges or the budget challenges or, you know, anything like I kind of have come to understand what composers and music teams are dealing with and what they're looking for. I think I just am a pretty good ally in the room. Sometimes it's also with singers, especially like if a composer, you know, didn't grow up uh, singing in a choir, you know, or, or doing singing at, at a higher level, um, if they're a pianist or a guitarist or something, there might be certain terminology that like there's certain words, it's not even like a lack of education, it's just a lack of experience in that setting. You yeah. know, there might be like a certain word that I would say where people be like, okay, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly the adjustment, you know, that you want to make. So sometimes I feel like I'm kind of translating too between yeah. the composer and the group and just little things like that. Or um, I don't know, balance things. I've just, I've been fortunate to be on these projects 
with great composers and, and other great contractors and conductors and just watching and learning what they do and what works and what doesn't. And I think I'm, I'm a pretty good learner when it comes to that and being able to then add it into my sort of skill set. So I think that that's probably what I bring. Mm-hmm. I mean, I honestly, I'm the first person to say that I'm not the most talented singer in LA. Like as far as like pure talent goes, like there's crazy talent in LA, you know, like, and I would be an idiot and wrong to say that I'm like the most incredible singer. But I think like my other skills that I bring into it, along with a good singing foundation, you know, solid singing foundation makes me um, desirable to have on projects. I was just going to jump in and add, this is very basic and it's sort of a gloss on what you were already saying, but to go back to the viola. Um, <laughs> all, just for the record, I'd like to say that is, he's the one who brought up viola this time. I mean, this might be useful for anyone who's interested in that kind of singing, who's watching, who's on the younger side, that practically everyone in the Master Chorale and practically everyone we know that is a choral session singer that gets the gigs where you have to turn up and read, they actually play instruments. They are very well-rounded musically, and that's why they're so good at reading. Practically everyone plays yeah, has another instrument. High ninety percent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm a really good reader. I, that's the thing that I do the best, honestly. So you know, if you put something in front of me, like I'm gonna read it down. That's probably the main reason that people hire me. That's the LA session way. Some of the the orchestras I've seen play at Capitol on film uh, sessions, just like. You guys just did two takes of that and they were both perfect. And now we're moving on. It's crazy. Just, like no mistakes. It's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> All the, the articulations. The and, it's crazy. Yeah. And you were talking about translating and that's kind of the role of the conductor. Cause now I remember while you're saying that, like watching the composer talk back to the conductor, be like, Hey, I want this and this and this. And then the conductor says something completely different to the mm-hmm. orchestra. And then that's what you get back. So there is uh, something to that as well. That's, that's cool. You know, in some ways it's, there's an industry language that's not, it's not exactly the same as a, you know, say a classical language. I actually, when I first arrived, I, there were a lot, there were lots of things people said and I didn't understand. And there was, there was the odd thing, like I would come and make charts for, for, I, I had this job with Rupert, I would come and, and make charts and there was, a, we were doing a movie like an Adam Sandler movie or something. And I played a lot of Scriabin when I was um, growing up. And he does this thing of, he has this very elaborate French phrases, you know, in his piano music. You know, he'll write like, play it like an evil flower or something. Right, you know, yeah. Incredibly yeah. Strange. There's a bit where he writes um, pochissimo writ, or sometimes pochiss writ, P-O-C-H-I-S-S writ. And I thought this was completely normal and I put, you know, I saw the click go down a tiny bit in Rupert's thing that he'd written. So I wrote Pocus Writ. And at the start of the day, we had some legendary guitarist, probably George Deering came in and we said, oh, yeah. you know, o- over the thing said, do you have any questions, George? And there's a pause and he says, what's a Pocus Writ? I'm like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. That's my incredibly pretentious assistant. Uh, it's, it's a small, and then, you know, that session would end and we'd do a session with the drummer, legendary drummer would come in. Do you have any questions? Yeah, it all looks fine. Except what's a pochis writ? <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. We went all the way through the day and nobody knew what the hell this stupid phrase was that I'd written. So. Oh my God, that's really good. And you'd think he would have learned, but no. 
Just well, everyone else is going to have to learn what that marking is. <laughs> That's right. You're bringing it over here. You're, you're, you're starting it. Dinner, what you mean? So this kind of ties into what you were saying, Chris. How does your really heavy traditional classical background play into your composition? Did you have to make a lot of changes? Do you feel like you had like really amazing roots that you kind of tweaked a little bit for the Hollywood sound? For many years, it didn't seem particularly useful at all. There was so much that I needed to learn. <laughs> There's a world of film music that I like and respect, but where in terms of harmony and notation, it's not particularly complicated, you know, and, and a lot is improvised and a lot is, uh, a lot is in the sound of it. And I was very sort of humbled because I, I didn't, you know, I could see that it was in E minor, but I couldn't make the microphones do what everybody else did. And I couldn't make the synthesizers do it. So, uh, yeah, I've tended to get gigs since I moved into my own, career that have utilized that. You know, I've been asked to do quite a lot of old fashioned things and, and I do write for the orchestra a lot. Probably the biggest, most consistent thing is, and I never saw this coming, is that, is that I tend to still do a lot of homework and a lot of research. I thought that I was telling you about musicology and I sort of always thought of that as kind of a, a something I did because I didn't know what else to do while I was building <laughs> my studio. And now to my surprise, I sort of seem to be a bit of a musicologist. So when I get a gig, I'll, I'll do a bunch of notes and I'll try and figure out sort of analytically what I want to do. And that actually extends outside legit sounding things. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a, a TV show I did called The Lion Guard, which Elise and I both worked on, which is based on The Lion King and, and leans quite heavily into the sub-Saharan Africa world that runs through The Lion King which in The Lion King was led by Lebo M, who, you know, lives and breathes that stuff. And in my case, I had to just sort of listen to lots of it really carefully and read the odd, you know, musicological article about it and write right. it down. And we had amazing session singers singing it by reading it rather than singers in Cape Town or, or wherever they were for the movie, singing it by learning it um, off by heart. Right, right. So it sort of ended up, I sort of approached things like that more than I would have expected. I could see where that comes into play a lot, actually. You know, I, I think that's, that's great. At least kind of also along those lines, um, you have a heavy music background as well. You said you're a great sight singer. Do you, uh, would you say to singers like coming up and thinking about moving to LA or New York that they should really work on their sight singing and kind of wrap their head around theory just in general? I mean, I think that, I, I think this is another... <laughs> Well, this is another one of those discussions that we could have for a long, long time because I certainly know, I know a lot of really successful, incredible singers who aren't readers, you know, and the kinds of stuff that they do, they don't need to have those reading skills. And I do want to be careful not to like disparage them at all because, you know, some of the stuff that they do, like I could never do, you know, there's different requirements for different gigs and different genres of music. And it just so happens that the thing that I do kind of requires reading skills. But I mean, I have insane respect for those singers. Having said that, though, I will say that there have been some moments where, you know, like we were talking about the Lion Guard those were really specific uh, vocal sessions that we needed to do because 
you know, it was a TV contract, which is um, four hours per episode. And, you know, even if you don't know The Lion Guard, you know from The Lion King, the importance of music in that film and that franchise. And within that, the importance of vocal music in that. Everyone, I think, sort of immediately thinks of the chanting that happens in that, you know. Um, but there's a ton of just sort of, you know, regular like Western choral music, like score choral music that is also present in that score that you don't immediately think of, but it's actually a huge component of what makes that score sound like that score. And so we had the budget. Um, I mean, truly, thank you, Disney, for budgeting for singers at all. Um, but we only had budget for four singers on each of those episodes. So those four singers had to be able to do both the chant, you know, convincingly enough. Yeah. And then also then in the middle of the session, switch to just doing, you know, straight ahead choral music. And so... That was the real kicker, yeah. It was, you know, and the only way to do all of that with the TV schedule, both on the writing and recording side, is to have readers. There was just no time to teach things, you know, teach, teach anybody things by rote. So I had to, you know, I had to really scour because it was really, really important to me to try to find people who could do the best job possible on that chant stuff to make it sound as authentic as we could possibly do it in Pasadena. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, I didn't want to sacrifice that quality. Yeah. But I needed then people, because since it was only four of us, everyone was only one on a part. You know, so if you're doing choral stuff traditionally, you know, if there's something that you, there's like a an interval that you're not getting, you can kind of rely on the person next to you and be like, okay, you've got my back here. I've got your back in this other place, you know, and you're constantly like helping each other. When it's yeah. one on a part, you really can't do that. And so I had to have like some real rock star people stylistically very flexible, but also good readers. And uh, there were some people that I really wanted to consider for that gig that I just couldn't because they didn't have the reading skills. So, you know, I will say that like sometimes that does happen. And so for that reason, I definitely encourage people to at least have some, you know, pretty solid reading skills, even if you're not totally perfect, yeah. you know, to just feel comfortable enough that you could go in and say like, okay, Especially like if you're in a group setting, you know, you can kind of follow along. You've got other people who are strong. You can get it in a few passes. Like get, at least I would say get yourself to that point. But yeah, I mean, for what I've done, like my ability to sight read is definitely one of the reasons that I work. So I can't completely poo-poo it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, since we're kind of talking, uh, you know, union singing sessions and obviously union recording sessions. Can we just, because I've actually never talked about this on the show, talk a little bit about those union sessions. Like I think a lot of people are like, oh, if I want to make an orchestra, I can just like record two violinists like a hundred times. But there's a lot of rules. Like every time you sing, it's technically you're getting paid again, right? You're not really supposed to overdub like orchestras on top of orchestras. Can you lay out for people some of the the ways that the the union kind of protects, you know, musicians and and what some of those rules are? because I don't even know them all at this point. Let me just get a whiteboard out for you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is fierce. It's complicated. Probably. Well, let me just say before Chris goes into stuff that since I have a platform right now, I'm going okay. to say for the record that instrumentalists are covered by the AFM. Singers are covered by SAG-AFTRA because we use our voices. We are covered 
by the actors union. So um, it's just, it's, I, I want to say that really clearly because it's a common misconception that we mm -hmm. come up against, even with people who've been working in the industry for a long, long time. So we actually have slightly different rules in recording sessions and we actually get paid on the back end, like residuals come from a different chunk of money than the instrumentalists. So there's actually quite a bit of difference that mm. um, you wouldn't know unless you really got into it. And why would anybody want to do that? So yeah, I'll yeah. just say quickly, as far as singing goes, um, it depends on what the project is, right? So there's different contracts for TV versus film, and there may be differences depending on the budget of the project too. Uh, and I think that's probably the same for AFM as well. Generally speaking, it's one pass, you know, you, you get paid for one pass. If you want to do the same pass, like you're singing the same notes multiple times, you get a bump of an extra uh, 33 and a third percent. So an extra like third of the check. And if you end up singing uh, multiple different notes, like you're stacking yourself up in a chord, you get an extra uh, 100%. But once you get to that extra 100%, you can do as much as you want. So actually, depending on, you know, what you're doing on the project, it you can get away with some stuff. You can be creative within that and it won't completely blow the budget. Right. Um, but obviously, if you're looking for a really lush choral sound, then the more people you have, the better. It's just, you know, the more diversity yeah. of voices in the group, the better the sound. But we've gotten away with some stuff, let me tell you. Like all legal stuff. <laughs> I think that, like, everybody has. <laughs> you got to get creative when yeah. you have budget issues. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it, you talk about the more people, the better. It's, it's those like micro intonations between voices and instruments. Mm. Yeah, exactly. In the organic world that make the difference, like the same violin 14 times actually sounds pretty awful. Yeah, it yes. starts to. So yeah. that, that's cool. Actually, I didn't know that you, you, you capped off at 100%. So if, if I sang four notes in a chord, I'm only getting paid as for 200%. For two. two. Okay. Yeah, that's right. It's good to know. Good to know. Amazing. Yeah, Look at that. On, you're learning quick. Yeah. See, not, not too complicated. I haven't, I've never yeah. hired a singer, so I don't know if I'm going to use this information, but I've got a catalog now. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ever need to talk about it, you know who to call. Yeah, I know where to go. <laughs> uh, anything it, on the AFM side, Chris? It's very, it's not exactly the same, but it's the same general philosophy on the AFM side. The net result has been that if the budget is huge, then there's no expense spared and you everything is real. You'd be surprised, actually, the number of projects, even in film, that are just a little below that philosophy of no expense spared, in which instruments that can be easily faked are just faked to cut a few corners. I've worked on some movies back in the days uh, when I was working, doing additional music, working on some surprisingly big movies and finding out to my surprise that we were going to not be recording certain things. You know, the, the marimbas, the xylophones, the timpani, the cymbals. And in my case too, I've done some of the most legit sounding movies I've done, I think people would be surprised that a few of the elements are not actually real or that there were some edits or, you know, things like that. But that opens the door on what life is actually like doing most projects now. You know, there's been this huge um, golden age of TV that we're all still talking about. One thing we don't talk about so much is why TV is so big now. And I think a lot of it is the technology that you can shoot castles and dragons and spaceships on TV now, which you simply couldn't a generation ago, unless you wanted to literally just be a bunch of cereal boxes on strings. 
And similar things are going on musically, which is that you're, you're, what you're hearing sounds like a huge orchestra or something equally expensive. And in fact, very, very often, what you're hearing is a skeleton crew of real people backed up uh, or is sort of interleaved with, with computerized parts. And we've spent many years now doing that and wrestling with that um, on a lot of the, the cartoons that I do. Well, and another thing that I think people might not know about are um, package deals, which is something that I think really only became prominent, what, 20, 15, 20 years ago, they started doing this, where it's not like this all the time, but uh, the majority of the things that Chris has worked on and most of our friends has worked on uh, means that the composer gets a chunk of money, uh, whatever is negotiated, but then out of that money, he or she has to decide how to spend it. Mm, so, yeah. um, you know, how, how many musicians to hire, how many orchestrators to have, you know, what recording studio to book because the composer is going to be paying for that too. And so you're constantly ending up with this like internal debate, like, do I spend as little of this money as possible so I get to keep it, you know? Yeah. Do I spend all of the money so it's it sounds the best that it can, but then I make literally nothing on this project? How do I, like, find a happy medium between that? And um, and we know people who exist on all ends of that spectrum. And it's just not... It's, it's really difficult because composers, I mean, they're not always the best accountants or, you know, the, the, the kind of people that you would go to to come up with a budget, right? For financial advice. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it just it seems like sort of mean to make them also have to do that in addition to being the creative mind behind it. But that is just the world that we live in now. Yeah, yeah. it's cruel. Of course, the, each project the composer does is a calling card for the next one. And so it's there's a sort of sinister genius to that system. And you force the composers to figure out how to make it as realistic as possible. You create intense competition to, for them to try and figure that out yeah. by making it their own bottom line. Yeah. One thing I will say, which has been developing for me over the last few years, one thing is you just, you get so tired of doing the hybrid thing. But as, I, as I've gotten older, I've done more research into what they used to do in the old days when they had limited budget and they didn't have computers and I've become more enamored of just using fewer people, but writing for those people. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, if you told me I was going to do a cartoon and there was going to be an orchestral bit that was going to spoof Korngold or Wagner or something, I would write it for a big orchestra. And then I would think, oh, well, shoot, I only have enough money for 10 people and a posh mix and a computer. Now I might be more inclined, having, having looked at what Scott Bradley, the Tom and Jerry guy did, and looked at Pinocchio and looked at what all the old Disney things did, I'm slightly more tempted by the idea of having 15 people or 18 people letting it sound kind of slightly scrappy and like mad because it's those 18 people trying to sound like Wagner and not entirely succeeding. And yeah. then not using any fake things at all and just having that sound feels... In a curious way, it feels kind of modern to me because you can tell there are no computers. It feels more fresh mm. and exciting. And yeah, I, I did, a, did a gig for Netflix called Cat Burglar where I was doing that kind of Tom and Jerry, Scott Bradley thing with this small group. That's cool. Working their asses off, you know. If it's supposed to sound like a big band, you only have four brass, but you use 
all the other instruments to back up the big band. You've got bassoon hidden in there and other nonsense. And it's just, you just, it's like all hands on deck all the time. Um, did the players enjoy that? I think, I think they so. Did. I mean, yeah. it was, <laughs> there was smoke coming out of their ears. The I like the delay. <laughs> well, yeah, it was an absolutely mad couple of days to Netflix's credit. Uh, it became very apparent that we needed more recording time than we had originally allotted for. Yeah. And they uh, approved more money to have them keep recording and also to have real players in the first place. So we're definitely uh, indebted to them. That was not a package deal. So sure. that allowed us a little bit more room for, you know, discussions down the road. Yeah. But that was a weird couple of days because the recordings are actually in London and we were here. So we were the first day, I think we recorded, started recording at 6 a.m. our time. Uh, it was like 2 p.m. over there. But then we realized we needed more time. So the second day we added a morning session, which meant that we started recording 2 a.m. our time. And we went until I think almost 12 hours that day. I think it was like 1.30 p.m. we finally finished. Like a hip hop session. Yeah, we were like, what <laughs> day is it? Where are we? What meal yeah. am I eating right now? It was very strange. Yeah, it was like being jet lagged. It was just really, really yeah. bizarre. But the players were incredible and uh, very fortunate that we got to do that. But yeah, I think Chris got to be really creative in a new way in that environment than he cool. had been previously. And again, those sort of musicology skills that he likes to trot out came in handy because <laughs> he, he was actually literally in touch with uh, a musicologist who specializes in cartoon music and Scott Bradley in particular. And he was able to send him original scores that he went over as he was trying to figure out his orchestration. That's fun. Yeah. That's awesome. One thing I should say about, about musicology and that kind of approach is that I think a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. So I think if you come to a style, let's say you come to sort of pop music from a classical background, you may completely miss what people are doing. You may not understand the dissonances they do. You may not understand the riffs that people do, that they're not actually on the beat and not on the bar lines. So there is a danger that you kind of come with your sort of classical chauvinism and you just don't understand what other people are doing. You do, what they're doing kind of goes over your head. I think if you go deep enough into one particular thing, it's actually quite humbling. So if you actually do music analysis, which is what I used to do, you go completely down a rabbit hole and you realize what an absolute genius some particular person is. You realize that all the theory you've spent your life doing is insufficient. And that's how I always felt about Scarlatti, which is the subject I did. I mean, it's, it's very difficult. It's not like I was just saying, oh, look, chord five, chord one, ah, easy peasy. So I was sort of intimidated by my musicological subject. And that's kind of in a way prepared me for looking at all these other subjects, uh, these other kinds of music and not expecting them to be easy and obvious, but expecting them to be difficult and expecting myself to be rubbish at them. <laughs> <laughs> this is, everybody feels that way. You know, I, what I, I feel like you, uh, you definitely seem like you're a bit of a, like a lifelong learner. You're always looking for new things. And I think that's awesome. And everybody should just keep learning. That comes up on this podcast all the time. I always tell people, learn new shit. <laughs> Get out there. <laughs> yeah, learn. I like that too. Yeah, I, I, I totally that's subscribe. That's definitely to that. true. Yeah. That's how I would describe him. Yeah. I have a question for both of you, whoever wants to, to answer. How is working in film and TV different now that streaming seems to be like 
you've got Disney Plus, you've got Apple TV, everything seems to be streaming. I, I'm curious about royalty structures. I know I've heard that streaming royalties are far less than broadcast was, but just in general, the experience of working in film and television music when you're more targeting streaming projects first back in the day when it was theaters and, and broadcast. Hmm. Well, I would be interested to hear your response as a composer. I think as a session musician, I don't notice a difference. I mean, we're still trying to put out the best product that we can. I think maybe recently what I've noticed is that there are things, some films that I've sung on that I would have thought, you know, a few years ago would have gone to, you know, to theaters and been like, really well received. And I mean, honestly, could probably still go to theaters and be really well received and do well at the box office that are just going to Disney Plus. So like we're recording films, but we're on TV contracts. So they're like not even, at at least as far as I can tell, (laughs) not even thinking about possibly releasing them in a theater. They want to lock those subscribers down. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, this is another thing that we could probably debate for a long time, right? Like the virtues of going to a theater versus having things more accessible to everyone and getting into more homes. I don't know. I mean, as far as the pay structure, it's hard to, I mean, you know, because you can't, when something only comes out on a streaming service, you can't compare it to anything else, you know? And if you had worked on a project that was broadcast somewhere else and then it goes to the streamer, you still can't really compare. You can see the actual numbers, but like presumably it's, um, I don't know, maybe it's not as popular as it was when it first came out. So maybe those dollars that you saw originally, like you can't really translate that. I think maybe with something like um, Lion Guard, uh, it's actually maybe weirdly the opposite. Like there were so many things on the channel that actually when it went to the streamer, there were a lot of people who were discovering it for the first time. So I'm not really sure that that translates into huge money comparatively, but it's but we've heard from a lot of people that, you know, that their kid is like obsessed with it now and they didn't even know about it before. So that that is really nice. But just as far as like what we're doing in the studios, I mean, I think we're still doing high quality stuff. We just, and maybe in some ways, there's actually more of it happening. You know, we are still always dealing with these budget issues, but, um, you know, recently I've worked on some high profile projects that where they are clearly putting the money into it, you know, even though it's going to the streamer, they still want it to be really good and to you know, stand the test of time and they want it to be right, you know? So if we have to go back in to do something again, they're willing to pay for it because they want it to be right. So at least I think from the quality perspective, it's, it's still very high and we're not trying to change anything on our end. Cool. It's awesome. Yes. We're still, I don't know if this is, if this is naive, but there's still a, a little bit of an attitude of of waiting and seeing about how it's going to work out financially, you know, because you still don't kind of know if you're on the coast of the States or you're in London or something, then you feel like everyone's streaming now. Yeah. Of course, statistically, that's wrong. We're all the early adopters. I never thought about that. It's a good point. But from the composer's point of view, I think what's interesting is that, well, a a lot of the time there's been a slight feeling of chaos. You know, when when you talk to people about what's actually happening you know, in Hollywood, what's getting produced? What What are the execs excited about? What are they worried about? There's a feeling that no, you know, nobody quite knows what's going on. That, of course, seems to be cyclical. 
right? That's what clearly has happened many times in the history of, of a place like LA. But I noticed that we composers are needing to adjust what it is they expect to happen, you know, what kinds of gigs are going to be the ones that are valuable to them artistically, financially. You know, the traditional model was that, was that it was all about movies, you know, that um, you would like to graduate from TV to movies, or, or maybe you'd have that kind of Hollywood star attitude of wanting to avoid TV altogether because you wanted, you know, you wanted your brand to be associated with, with movies. And that's just become so kind of messed up and, and tangled now. Because, oh, yeah. Because there are a lot of kinds of movies that aren't getting made at all now. There's this bifurcation of movies into the big blockbusters on the one hand, and this now kind of seasonal Oscar movie thing that we're all dealing with, where there's a sort of torrent of very small, very serious movies. You know, we're, we're starting to see it right now. You know, the next, from now until the spring, it'll all be about about those. And then we'll be back to the blockbusters again. So, that, so, so things just change. And I think the com we as composers are inclined to stick to the way of thinking that we may have had 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And so it's, it's, the, it's quite head spinning. And, then, and that's not even getting into video games. So the, the, the big story um, of the last generation is video games, the stature of them. Um, it may be that we look back on this period and we talk more about the great video games than we do about any of the movies and TV shows. And yeah. some people have been too, too snooty to actually um, to get on that train. So it's, it's confusing. It's head spinning. You know, that reminds me, I had, I had a question buried in my, my notes over here about video games. I know you, you guys have both worked in video games. Does that feel like a place where there's a lot of potential for musicians and composers? And right now it's just a smaller group of people that have kind of embraced it? It does seem to be, doesn't it? I mean, some of it's very high concept and, and, and it's often very lavish too. That's a funny thing. A if you're looking sideways yeah. from yeah. TV to, to video games, you'd have to conclude that the big video games are not worrying. They're not, anyway, they're, they're, they have more money. <laughs> <laughs> What's the time frame like on a, on a video game? If you're doing score for a game, is it the kind of thing that drags on for like a year or you last and you have to do it fast? How does that work? I've never done a sort of a big, legit video game, it, but it does appear. I think it, it can be a very long That they go on a long yeah. time. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So it's actually, it's, in that sense, it's quite different from the, particularly from TV, which goes very fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was just going to say video games from a union recording standpoint is a bit of a tricky landscape. Uh, I won't bore you by going into that, but um it has its own issues. I'll just say that. But just in terms of like reaching people and people having these like emotional responses to it, I mean, it's huge. I And uh, one of the ways that I've seen it most, um, you know, in person is the live concerts. You know, people are doing a lot of like live orchestral concerts to, to films or whatever, but the video game live concerts are just crazy popular. That's a thing. That's awesome. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like I've I've been involved in a few um, performances in LA, but it's a a show that's based on a video game that's touring. You know, and you're listening to the music and you're seeing footage from the game on a huge screen. So it's still kind of like a score. You know, live score to picture, but just right. just the picture is the video game. And um, they'll tour it around and have you know local musicians, uh, instrumentalists, and singers do the concert. And um, it yeah, I mean every one of those I probably done 
maybe four or five of them at this point, every single one of them, huge crowds, super enthusiastic crowds. They'll have like the creators of the games, like if it's a Japanese game or something, even like in LA, the creators will fly out and and people will go insane and they might like use that to make announcements for like the, the next version of the game or like a new character that they're introducing and people, you know, and, and people are dressed up as the characters and they go nuts for it. And, you That's know, they crazy. just did... We're good friends with um, Austin Wintery, who does a ton of amazing game scores. And um, I remember him posting like a month ago or so, they did a concert of game scores at the BBC Proms, which is like the summer sort of concert series at Albert Hall in London. And it was the first time they'd ever done uh, any video game scores live. And, you know, if the British can get on board with that, <laughs> then I think I think that tells you like how popular it is because <laughs> they're not always <laughs> the most cutting edge popularity speaking. So yeah, I, I think that it's really, really easy to uh, not realize how huge games and game scores are, how many people are just completely obsessed with them. That's amazing. It's like a live Twitch almost. <laughs> Live yes, orchestra yeah. Twitch. Totally. That's super yeah, cool. Absolutely. I think <laughs> from the from the authorial side, it's um again quite confusing for the composers because I think what's emerging, this is me talking without having actually done one, just talk to other composers. I've done a few games that have gotten a little bit into this, but I think the most if as as the game developers are experimenting more and more with music, the most sort of evolved an effective way to use music in the game is a way that breaks the music up into smaller chunks and into layers, right? If the music is capable of jumping off from the, from the piece we're on every four bars or every bar even, is, it, it's an available moment to jump from this piece of music to another. And if we have many layers of the same piece of music, you have a calm layer, but then we have another layer that that makes it feels less calm and another layer and another layer. That means that from the user's point of view, the music can evolve extremely flexibly as the player moves around from one space to another and from one situation to another. Yeah. And that's very exciting viewed as a whole, if you think about the game as a whole and, uh, and, and the evolution of it. Of course, it's challenging for the composer in his or her ivory tower holding a quill and expecting to write, you know, a great symphony inside a video game because that's not kind of what they had in mind. They were thinking of something much more teleological that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so, well, of course, you did Cat Burglar, which is in a lot of ways a video game. Yeah, Cat Burglar it is actually a video game. Yeah, right. Uh, and and had to do that. It, this it, happens a lot. He'll be like, "No, I didn't do that." I'll be like, "Yeah, you did. Remember <laughs> that?" Thing. That's why you're both here. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It doesn't have layers like I was describing, but it does actually that it has a, a tree structure. So very often the piece of music that you're hearing forks and, and there's, a, there's a version that goes into a happy direction and a version that goes into a now you die. Oh, direction. Oh, sorry. Ow. You don't That's, die. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, that, yeah, because I guess to a certain extent, you'd almost have to have something that's modular for the game to trigger it has to it has to be loopable to a certain extent but also long enough to be interesting totally yeah but yeah i feel like that would be hard it was funny well, something that we talked about a lot on cat burglar is that i'm sure when you were playing it you would think this is great now for the sequel let's make it 10 times more complicated 
But if it's a cartoon, if it's supposed to sound like Tom and Jerry and it's supposed to look like Tom and Jerry, we were the absolute maximum complexity we could possibly fathom. I mean, the amount of animation, the amount of music, the number of decisions, the number of headaches was so astronomical. I'm mean, <laughs> sure someday there will be a cartoon that's supposed to look like Tom and Jerry and is 10 times more complicated. But I, um, I, <laughs> offer, my, I offer my sympathy <laughs> to whoever's writing the music because it's going to kill them. <laughs> that's, that's amazing uh, so I had just a couple questions before we do our last closing questions from each of you one uh, Elise do you have any advice for up and coming vocalists is there like one thing that you would share with people that you think will help them the most well I would say that you really just need to know yourself and what your voice does well or even just easier than that like what you want to do. I mean, I won't go into my like giant sob story, but I was, um, you know, interested in other things when I went to uh, college than just singing operatically, but the program just wasn't really set up for people who wanted to explore other things. And so even though I like, I knew that I had these interests in singing other kinds of music and, and just and, and experimenting with different things with my voice in a sort of non-classical way, that was not encouraged at all. And what ended up happening was I went very much the opposite direction in the sense that, <laughs> well, quite frankly, I was kicked out of my vocal performance program because they just, they wanted people who did this one thing that they wanted and they did it really well and they were going to be successful and they could put their name on an like alumni brochure, like, look who went to our school. They really didn't care about nurturing what I was interested in or like even like asking me what I was interested in, you know? And so I guess another way to say this is like, if you're going to spend time in an academic environment or any kind of environment where you are learning from, you know, professors or other singers who've had a certain kind of career and they're trying to shove that on you and you're like, I don't think this is what I want to do. Like, it's very difficult, I think, especially if you're, you know, late teens, early 20s, like you're doing your undergrad age or maybe in some cases even younger to stand your ground and be like, you know what, this is actually not my thing. And it's okay that it's not my thing. This is your thing. That's great. But I really want to, you know, I feel pulled in these certain directions or even like with us, like I used to write a lot of like poetry and like sort of made up song lyrics as a kid, like taking a song and changing the lyrics. And I always just thought that that was something that I was kind of doing for fun. Um, and now it, it actually turned into something that we do together, like writing songs as his lyricist. And so, you know, I... I should have trusted my instincts a little bit more and been like, oh, there was a reason that I wanted to do this and I, you know, and pursue that. But it's just really easy to get caught up in someone else's vision of what your life should be and what your career should be. And it's very hard sometimes to take a step back and be like, no, this is, I, I actually, I need to like reevaluate the situation. And so I think, again, I was very fortunate getting into Master Corral because that put me in a space where I could see people having careers that were not exactly the one kind of career that I was told was the one that I should want because that was what success looked like. Yeah. You know, and just being in a space with people who were doing lots of different things and and having a great life, you know, and being successful musicians. So um, 
Yeah. Again, and, you know, I, I was fortunate that, that I was 22 at that point and I like still feel like I had time to kind of like redirect myself and be like, oh yeah, look at what that person is doing. That's actually what I want to do and, and kind of move in that way. So yeah, I don't know. That's a very like broad answer and probably could be applied to different careers too. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I just, I feel like we can a lot of times be pushed in a certain direction to the point where we're like, how did we end up here? And, and I'm not happy and I'm not actually succeeding. Why am I doing this? So having the ability to kind of know yourself enough to be like, actually, I want to be over here. Yeah. That answer is like perfect for this show. Cause it's kind of where this, this show is inspired by me kind of going on that journey, except I wasn't 22. I was like 32, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's something about this industry that really pushes people towards like something that already exists. You know, it, it's like here, this is, these are the successful, the five famous composers or the five top singers or five top mix engineers, go be these five people. Right. And you, you're never going to land in that person's chair. You're going to have to make your own chair. So you just, you know, I think that's one of the things that I really try to push on people in this industry is, you know, you can have your idols, but you're never going to be that person. You're never going to have their path. So you've got to go back and listen to everything that Elise just said <laughs> and then do that. But same question for Chris. Do you have one, like one game changing tip for up and coming composers? Well, this is it sort of in that same world to some extent. Yeah. I think the, the biggest battle you're fighting is with the blank page, is with actually doing anything at all as a composer. There's a, a phenomenon that I remember, which maybe a lot of people who've moved to LA will notice that kind of encapsulates it. That if I think about college and I think about the people I knew, the average person I knew was unbelievably sensitive and intelligent and brilliant and didn't quite know what they were gonna do with their life. And when I moved to LA, and knew people who were, had sort of burgeoning careers, there were a surprising number of people who seemed a bit idiotic and to have quite bad taste, but were just about making it work. <laughs> and the difference, the trouble is that there's a sort of dividing line in the, in the middle. On one side, you're self-critical to the point where getting anything down on paper is very difficult because everything you do is bad and rubbish and you know that it is. And on the other side of the dividing line, you are able to get the thing out onto the page and you don't destroy it before it even exists. And unfortunately, if you're way off to the uncritical side of that line, you're not very good, but you do actually keep making things and you get better. <laughs> if you're way off on the other side of the dividing line, you never do anything. And most of us, most of us are too self-critical and the critical part of yourself is stronger than the making part of yourself. And it's okay, that's who, that's who most of us are. But in order to make anything, you have to teach yourself and you have to learn to, maybe what you need is deadlines, maybe you need a friend who's making a film or, or a show, maybe you need to agree to do something that is gonna be terrible, but it will force you to do something. Everything you do, you, you know, you're going to think this is too generic. You know, I wanted to write, you know, something great. And this is just like, I'm just sort of doing a queen song, but with, <laughs> with stupid lyrics, you have to do something though. You have to do something. Your enemy is the blank page. You have to, you have to start getting onto that 
cycle of making a thing and criticizing a thing that exists and rewriting it rather than criticizing things that don't even exist or, 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 or throwing them all in the fire. It's not that we all want to turn into the blowhards, but that's our big enemy is, is, is the blank page. And most of us, oh, and of course we want the sensitive people. We want the people who are brilliant and sensitive. Those are the people that we want. And so I call out to all of your listeners who are those people. I see you <laughs> and I want you to make things, even if you think they're terrible. You know, there's something that you just said. I'm not sure what it was, but it just made me think of something else that I wanted to say, which is that I think it's sometimes we don't give ourselves permission to like change our minds about what we consider successful or like successful career. When you're younger, you're sort of dreaming, you know, that you're going to be the next pop star or the next, like, you know, the next, like whatever the biggest thing is that you can think of in the career that you want. And by all means, if you still want to do that, then like, go for it. That's great. But like, at some point you might change your mind or you might, I think also this applies to people who maybe went to school for something like music and then didn't end up in music. I think that we're conditioned to think that, that that's failing, you know, like even if you're happy with what you ended up doing because you didn't become like the next great concert pianist, you failed. Yeah. And that's <laughs> stupid. <laughs> like it's true. not it's true. everybody, not everybody does that can do that. And it's fine if you don't want to do that anymore, you know, or if you want to do something else in your field, you want to transition into something else because that, you know, like like being um behind the microphone, like producing some of our stuff, like writing some of the songs that we've done, and then like helping other singers record them. Like I really enjoy that almost more, I mean, maybe sometimes even more than being in front of the mic. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that's fine. You know, <laughs> it, like if I'm not like some amazing famous singer at, and that's like the only thing that people know about me, like I kind of almost prefer that at this point. And I don't know if I would have even thought about that being a possibility, you know, when I was in school. So I think just kind of constantly like looking at what you're doing, evaluating your situation and being like, you know what, actually doing this kind of thing feels right right now. And it's not, I'm not failing because I didn't go in that one particular direction. I'm figuring out what I actually want to do. And that is its own kind of success. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. And I love all of that. I mean, it's, it's so true. The permission thing is I, I had a guest early in this season, uh, an artist goes by dressage. I don't know if you if you know her, but she said one of the you know things that helped her the most was like having giving herself the permission to not know something, and that almost like enabled her mm -hmm. to feel comfortable like trying new things. It's like goes back to the having the blank page. It's like well, you have to give yourself permission to write a little bit of bad music before uh, you know you can write some good music. Also, I was thinking about while Chris was talking, the Art of War. Have you guys read the Art of War by Stephen Pressfield? No. Um, no, or is it, or is it the War of Art? It's <laughs> some combination. Deep. It's the War of Art, not the Art of War. That's that's a different book. That's uh, uh, right. Sun Tzu, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Sun. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, <laughs> Which uh, I also haven't read. Yes, but either we should all read both of those. But that one's really good. It's kind of it's it's more from the uh, from the writer's perspective of basically like you know the only way to like write a book is to go in, sit down, and write. You know, to just do. It's like you're not going to become a film composer or a hip hop producer, if you don't just like sit down and do it. It's all about like starting, basically. It's about starting, yeah. which I think is, which is huge. It's a very, a very tangible 
aspect of that, I think, is when I discovered that um, it's a very effective tool for a film composer to just hook up a mic and have a mic by the keyboard and to make noises sometimes to kind of figure out the sound of a particular gesture. But it's so embarrassing to do that, even when no one else is in the room, that it's a big coup, it's a big breakthrough when you finally convince yourself to do that, to go like, or like, you know, like an idiot. That's awesome though. And a, a very related one is, is that on the Lion Guard, doing the chants, one had to just do that. Yeah. To, to like chant the most terrible, ridiculous things. Um, and I worked, particularly later on, I worked with a fantastic um, up-and-coming composer called Ed Underhill on the Lion Guard, and, and he started um, doing additional music on that with me. And he was very resistant to doing, you know, he would sort of write a marker saying, okay, and there'll, there'll be a chant here. And I'd be like, hey, you didn't, you didn't sing the chant into your mic. Um, and he wouldn't do it, and he wouldn't do it, and I kept encouraging him to do it, because he's kind of a quiet guy. He's so brilliant musically but he's kind of kind of a, a, a reserved uh, person and then one day a thing popped in my inbox and he he was chanting so quietly into the mic but but he did it and it was great and that's and it was i was that's, so proud of him and it was like it was like a, a breakthrough moment <laughs> that's that's amazing that's awesome uh well this has been a lot of fun i've got two questions that i end every show with so the first question is and some of these things we've touched on a little bit for sure was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Oh. Well, Mickey Mouse has been like that for me, I suppose. I never, I had no expectation that I would ever be involved in cartoons at all. And they were three and a half minutes long. So everything about them was the opposite of what I thought I was going to be doing. <laughs> and then at a certain point, you know, maybe you're in another country or we're at, at Disney World and you see a kid singing one of the songs or watching one of the cartoons or something and you realize, oh, wow, we've been doing a real thing all these years. This is a thing that people watch that, you know, it counts. That's awesome. Yeah, like yeah. Having, having kids know your work because it's just a part of their childhood is probably not something I thought was possible before. Yeah. That's super yeah. cool. Yeah, and kids are like the best gauge. You know, they just like they like things oh, yeah, because they, have they no like filter. Them. No filter. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's awesome. I think maybe for me, it's just like the doing stuff more behind the scenes um, instead of being in front of the mic. Just maybe because I never really thought that that was possible. Um, but I think just again going back to what I was saying before, it was always the goal was you know be a singer, be a singer, be a singer, make your entire living from singing. And while I still basically do do that, the more opportunity I get to be behind the mic or um, on the conducting podium and not actually one of the singers, like, I think maybe to me that would have felt like not a failure, but, but maybe just a, I don't know, a cop out or something like yeah. I should be singing. And now I'm like, right. no, I'm actually, I'm doing really important work, you know, up there behind the mic too. And that's giving me just as much pleasure and sense of accomplishment as being in front of the mic. That's great. I have to ask because I, I wanted to. Chris, you did music for a ride, right? And did you, was it a ride? That's right. Yes. Was there timing involved in that? Was it like scoring the ride mm -hmm. or was it just like a music bed? Because it sounds really fascinating. It's a good question. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to that we could go into. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the whole ride is based around a song that we wrote together. So you see a song in the pre-show 
So the, the conceit of the ride is that you are lining up to see a premiere of a new Mickey cartoon. And then in the middle of the cartoon, um, and that cartoon centers around the song that we wrote together. Got it. And then in the middle of that, something happens. I don't want to like give it away if people haven't been on it. Uh, but then you, you, the screen blows up and you end up going inside the cartoon. So the ride feels like you're inside a cartoon. No, that's cool. That's cool. So you were, you're basically scoring the, the writer experience. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. It's structured and described basically like a movie. The, the whole process is very, very story-like. There's a storyboard at the very start before you have anything else to go on. You think of the pre-show and even parts of the queue as being part of the story. You describe them in terms of scenes and you score splurges of the ride in single chunks of story in single cues. And then there's just, there's a lot of complexity that might come in to handle the fact that not everyone's in the same place at the same time. For instance, you might have two scenes that are next to each other, but musically they both trigger at the same time and they're both playing in the same tempo, in the same harmonies. But the, the train moves from room A to room B. Okay, so right. people, people move seamlessly from, from the one piece of music to the other. Ah, yes. Okay. So there are many, many little tricks and, and things like that. And then sometimes you just have a buffer and you have a, a place where there's a door or something and you say, okay, well, that piece of music's over uh, and now there'll be another one. Then and you have places where the ride might break. Yeah, and, that was always the thing that I found interesting is that there's all this extra music that gets recorded that you only ever hear if the ride stalls. Oh, wow. So there's like some really great stuff that Chris wrote and that, you know, that we had to record as if everyone was going to hear it, where it might only be a very, very tiny percentage of people who ever even get to experience that. That's fun. Uh, the hope being that if, if, if the ride stops for a little while at some of these places, you don't realize that there's anything wrong. You just the music carries on and the animation carries on and the fact that you aren't moving seems like it's all part of the show and then you you do keep moving and you, and, and everything just keeps going that's deep <laughs> yeah that, that's complicated yeah that's deep to plan yeah. out from every perspective that that's genius you're like oh yeah i went to disney world nothing broke but really every ride was broken <laughs> you just right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh that's cool i i had to ask because i was just super curious about that that sounds fun so it's it's open well it so it opened march 4th 2020 at Disney World. So if we were at Disney World for the opening, no one was worried about anything. And then a week and a half later, everything <laughs> shut down. Um, yeah, on March 4th, there were discussions about hand sanitizer happening. But by right. about March 8th, the entire, really. <laughs> yeah. the entire country had shut down. Yeah. yeah. And of course, the song that we wrote, unfortunately, was entitled Nothing Can Stop Us Now, which the internet loved. <laughs> they were like, except COVID. But then when the, the park opened back up again, when Disney World finally opened back up, they played it as people came in, like on Main Street, which uh, was very cool. Yeah, nice. but, um, I was just going to say they are uh, building a new version of the ride at Disneyland currently. So that's, we think, going to be open maybe like spring next year, definitely 2023. We don't cool. have an exact date yet. But Chris is... Um, getting to revisit it a little bit, uh, recording a little bit of uh, new music just to uh, deal with the slight adjustments of being in a different building, basically, for this ride. Uh, okay. 
And then the Q line is actually a completely different sort of concept. So he's right in the middle of that right now. Lots and lots of fun new music. Nice. That's awesome. For the new Q. The whole of Toontown is, is, is going to be different. Cool. Lots of nice music coming. Uh, yeah, coming to it's Toontown. exciting. Yeah. That's very cool. All right, so back on track here. Well, so the last question before we go um, is, uh, what is your current biggest goal? This can be you guys individually, you guys together um, right now, and what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? Whoa. Wow. Biggest goal, small step. This makes me, like, sweat slightly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is there a biggest goal? I don't know. It's just like... I mean, well, I don't just, want to speak for you. But. No, well, I think it just is kind yeah. of a continuation of what we were saying. It just sort of feels amorphous in a good way, you yeah. know, not not having like one, like we have to get there. I think maybe for, well, for me, I think it just, just doing more of what I've been doing. Um, you know, fortunately, post-pandemic, things have been coming back pretty, you know, strong. Uh, there's been a good amount of work. So just doing more of that, maybe more conducting. I'm really enjoying that. I think for us together, more songwriting would be really great. Yeah, We'd cool. I'd love to explore that further. Nice. And I know you'd like to do more film work. Yeah. As well. I've loved doing the cartoons and I love the feeling of making one thing that's one piece of music, one musical thought. But film, there's nothing musically quite like doing a film. I love doing the films that I've done. I love the shape of it, the journey of it. So yeah, yeah looking forward to, to doing more films. Sound-wise, I have a thing that I really want to do, which is that I've learned about so many instruments from around the world doing cartoons, and I'd like to use them, but not when you're supposed to be signposting that country. Mm. <laughs> That's right. just a little ambition of mine. I, 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 want to, I want to use the, the ahu or the soprano saxophone or the, uh, the cymbalom, but not like... It sneak up on you with it, so you don't really you don't really know what it is when you first hear it because because we're not signposting that we're in a particular place. But I need a I need a fantasy or a sci-fi or something. Create your own your own world. You know, when you're doing those things and you're getting into those really specific instruments, are you do you know players in other countries or are, is there enough people in Los Angeles to keep those things covered for you? How do you handle the unique stuff that you end up having to put in some of these cartoons? I've repeatedly thought that I was going to use people in other countries and started putting out feelers. And I don't, unless you can think of one, I don't know if it's ever happened in the end. The, the, the funny emblematic version of that is that I really wanted to find a good uh, sitar player for a Mickey Mouse that was, that was set in India. And I, I had been thinking that I might well be talking to someone in India. And various recommendations led me back to the person they told me was, you know, one of the best uh, sitar players I could find. And he was in Altadena. He was there. He was, he lived about five blocks from me or something ridiculous. So I've ever since then not assumed that that was what was going to happen. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. Well, this has been uh, a really enjoyable conversation. I'm sorry we went a little bit longer, but you know, there's two of you, so we got to go longer, right? Um, is there anything you want to share with people, um, stuff you've coming out or people can get in touch with you? Anything you want to share, this is your little spot to let people know. Well, I've been working on an album using the vocals of uh, Eva Cassidy, the jazz singer who passed away in the 90s. Cool. Uh, and then shot to fame, especially in Europe, after she died. The record label have had this idea that almost, in a way, goes back to 
ambitions that Eva had when she was alive, which is just to do more ambitious arrangements, and uh, uh, more orchestral arrangements. And that's been an absolute honor and privilege. So I've been doing those orchestral arrangements along with uh, William Ross. He's done some of them. And we've been working with the London Symphony Orchestra. So these big orchestral arrangements that isolating Eva's original vocal stem, uh, sometimes using some very cutting edge AI technology to isolate her vocal, very oh, much wow. the same technology that they used in the Beatles Get Back documentaries. You know, to you, uh, we want to hear what John Lennon is saying right now, but we want to filter out everything else that you're hearing in the room. Basically the same thing. We want to hear what Eva is doing, but we, we want to lose the original arrangement and, and just have the new arrangement. So that's coming out sometime soon, and I'm, I'm really excited about that. That's very cool. Very yeah, cool. It's really gorgeous. I think people nice. are really going to like it. That's amazing. Well, you can find us on Twitter sometimes. <laughs> We're not the most social media yeah. people, but um, he's Mr. Chris Willis, and I'm Elise M. Willis. And uh, yeah, there's some stuff coming out on Disney Plus uh, soon, later this year, uh, Mickey Mouse and some other projects that cool. I've worked on. And I think yeah. Disney Plus has a really good slate coming out. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Yeah, you've got some very exciting stuff coming out. Yeah, I think yeah. some stuff that people are really going to enjoy. Nice. So yeah, they know what they're doing. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, it's been a lot of fun. Um, maybe I'll run into y'all in Los Angeles. We're, we're basically neighbors, so... Yeah, that's uh, crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's been been fun. Thanks for taking the time and uh, coming to hang out. It's been great. Thank you for great having questions. Us. Thanks very yeah. much. Yeah, thanks. That's it for episode seventy nine. Thanks to Chris and Elise for coming on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation, and I hope you did as well. Thanks to Stephen Boyd for editing, and obviously thanks to all of you for listening. A heads up for everybody: there is only one episode left for season two. That'll be in two weeks. And then we'll be taking a hopefully brief hiatus to get season three rolling. I'm planning on launching season three at the top of January. There's a lot of big changes, though. The show will be available as a full-length video interview on YouTube. So I'm super excited to explore that new format. I hope some of you will jump over and watch the show there. But don't worry, the audio-only versions will continue in all the normal places. So in preparation for season three, please subscribe to the YouTube channel and hit the bell thing. You can find it at youtube.com slash at progressionspod. You've got to put the at sign in there. Uh, also, subscribe to the audio version if you haven't already. That way you won't miss any of the new episodes. And we're on socials at Progressions Pod everywhere, so follow the show there as well. On that note, I will see y'all next time.